0: Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors.
1: Hello and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. Our guest today is Itamar the co-founder and CEO of Veho a next-generation logistics startup that is out to reinvent the delivery experience for e-commerce brands and their customers. In just two years, Veho's delivery and return logistics platform has grown to 900 employees and is on track to be operating in 50 U.S. markets by the end of the year. Earlier this year, only a few months after its Series A raise of $125 million, Veho raised another $170 million, bringing its valuation to around $1.5 billion. By focusing on technology that gives customers more control and transparency over the shipping process and experience, VHO promises to build loyalty and increase customer lifetime value for e-commerce brands. The last mile of delivery market that it plays in is already worth more than $100 billion globally and estimated to reach close to $150 billion by 2025. Welcome to the podcast, Ita. Great to have you with us.
0: Thanks, Daniel, for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation today. Why did you start VHO? What problems... Are you trying to solve? I started VO about six years ago when I was in business school. I was born and raised in Israel. And back in that time, e-commerce was not very developed. I moved to the US to go to business school and I started buying things online. This is a real story. One of the first things about online was a meal kit, you know, food that comes in a box. And this was a Monday. So I did not buy food from my apartment, came back from school late, was hoping for the box to arrive and it never arrived. I actually went to sleep hungry that night. And the following day, I called the brand that I bought from. And I said, look, I don't know where the box is. Can you give me any information? And they said, we don't know where it is either. You should call the delivery company. So I called the delivery company for 40 minutes. Nobody answers the phone. And I canceled my subscription before even trying the food for the first time. And I had this moment of epiphany where I said to myself, you know, these e-commerce brands are spending so much money on branding and acquiring customers and bringing innovation to the world. But that moment of truth, the moment when a customer actually gets to meet the product for the first time, that's almost absent from the entire experience. Nobody's paying attention to that. How will those e-commerce companies be able to create loyalty in the future if the logistics, if the delivery is so disconnected from the brand experience? That was the moment that made me realize that there's this huge opportunity to help brands extend their brand experience from online shopping all the way to the customer door. And by doing that, create customer loyalty, make this their competitive advantage. And that's essentially the problem that I wanted to solve that made me start this company. You learned firsthand how quickly a brand
1: can lose a customer with a bad delivery.
0: Not only that, but on the flip side, brands that do a really good job, Amazon, for example, is one of those companies that has really mastered the philosophy that the shopping experience doesn't end when you place an order online. It extends all the way to your door. They create a loop where anywhere you interact with them, you know, pre-purchase, post-purchase is part of the whole experience. If the delivery experience is great and it's seamless, that makes those customers come back and buy again. When I started the company, I didn't actually know that. That was a hypothesis. But since then, we've been running case studies. And those case studies show that customers who receive this type of experience tend to come back and buy more, it's higher customer lifetime value give those brands higher net promoter scores. That's the missed opportunity. It's not only fixing the logistics, it's fixing the entire brand perception and the loyalty between the customer and the brand through logistics. When you first came to the U.S. to go to Harvard Business School, did you know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Oh, I knew for sure. As a matter of fact, I was sitting on a plane from Tel Aviv to Boston and I decided to write down my four goals for business school. Number four on the list was learn something in class. The first one was start a company. Beforehand, I've done a bunch of things in my career. One of them is I'm a lawyer. I worked at this law firm. I met a friend of mine, and we were sort of frustrated with the work that we were doing. And he said, I have an idea to start a podcast about entrepreneurship and learn how other people do that. He started a podcast. I joined him. And we actually produced episodes with founders of very successful Israeli startups. I was exposed with that ecosystem. And by the time I had moved to the U.S., I already knew that that's what I wanted to do. Let's talk a little bit about where VHO operates today and what
1: aspirations you have for growing it. I think you're in something like 20 markets in the U.S. So tell me how that growth has gone, how fast you want to grow in the U.S. in terms of getting nationwide, perhaps, and our international markets in your thoughts at this point, too.
0: For the first four years, it was really just about proving the model and proving to brands that we could do something special for them and we can actually help them fix their logistics. There was a lot of pitching to brands, a lot of pitching to investors, but we were only operating in one market. We got to three markets beginning of 2020. It was quite a slow process. After pitching to 150 VCs, there was one VC, Blink Capital. They saw the opportunity. They believed in it. And we finally had the money. Uh, So I could go out and focus on sales instead of fundraising. Second thing that happened was the national carriers, volume spiked during the first days of the pandemic, and they literally capped the volume. They say overnight success, 15 years in the making. VARSA was four years in the making, pandemic hit, and we started selling and getting a lot of business. Every time we launched with a new client, they saw the, the tremendous value they were bringing and they wanted to expand very quickly. We went from three markets within a little more than a year to 19, 20 markets really quickly around the country. company went from 15 employees to close to a thousand today. We grew our revenue 80 times during that time. So far, we've been mostly a platform for last mile delivery, a warehouse operation in each market with a marketplace of crowdsource drivers allows us to seamlessly match the supply of driver partners with demand for deliveries. That has been like a gig economy play with a warehouse and moving forward. The thing that we're focusing on is building a network because Most e-commerce companies don't even have a warehouse in each city in the United States. It's incredibly expensive. So they tend to ship from several locations that are within regions. And for us to be able to expand our reach and serve those e-commerce brands, we need to be able to facilitate the movement of goods from their facility within the region all the way to our warehouse in the city. And then from there with a driver partner to the customer door. So that's how we're thinking about this. We're evolving from a last mile platform to a regional network platform United States. We want to cover 70, 80% of the US population in the next 24 months. And at that point, start thinking about international expansion as well. And you mentioned the gig
1: economy. Obviously, drivers in the gig economy are a key part of the VIHO proposition and approach. How is that going so far?
0: There is a tremendous shift in that individuals are looking for a lot more flexibility in their lives. Vio didn't invent this. We're absolutely capitalizing on this. Every time we go and talk with a new brand, oftentimes, a question that we get is, why is it better to utilize a crowdsourced driver than a professional driver in uniforms in a a branded vehicle? There is this perception that it's better to have somebody who's doing this all the time for 25 years, because that's how the industry has been. Operating. The reality is, it's the same good working human beings who want to make a living and want to do something that they feel excited about. We treat our driver partners as customers. Our mission as a company is to transform the world of package delivery by creating exceptional experiences for customers and for drivers. And drivers and customers are part of the same group because we understand they have a lot of options. And when we take that approach and we build a whole operation to make sure that they're happy, we find that they tend to be quite loyal to the platform, they tell their friends about it. It is a differentiated product from their standpoint. When you think about it, it's not on demand. You can choose your schedule ahead of time. For the most part, you can even choose where you're driving. Um, You know how much money you're going to be making ahead of time. You can decide whether you want to take it or whether you're waiting for the price to go up, which happens it's a marketplace. You don't have to interact with passengers in your car. You don't have to wait for the food at the restaurant to be ready, mostly during the daytime. For all these reasons, we found incredible success utilizing the gig economy.
1: What have been the biggest challenges you've encountered so far since the business took off in terms of keeping up with it and staying successful? And what lessons have you learned about starting to scale as you have experienced this rapid growth?
0: If you were to quantify what makes VO special today, I think there's two metrics that tell the story. On-time delivery rate and average customer rating. How many of those packages that a brand shipped actually arrived with VHO on time? We usually average around 99.9%, which is much higher than anybody else, by an order of magnitude better. The second one is customer experience, CSAT. When a customer receives a box through the VO platform, we ask them to rate the service one to five stars, and we average 4.9 stars. Again, much, much higher than anybody else who's playing in this space. It was very easy to do when we had five drivers on the platform. At one warehouse, in our 20 cities, tens of thousands of drivers, lots of people working at the warehouse and lots of moving pieces, maintaining those two quality metrics in a way that is much better than the industry that makes the customer want to come back and buy more from the brand, allows us to grow the business this way incredibly hard. If you ask me, what is that thing that keeps me up at night? It's not losing that edge of the 99.9, 4.9 because of the operation. That's not it. It's about how do we maintain that edge through culture? Because first and foremost, it is about people actually want to go above and beyond to make sure every package gets delivered, every customer matters, and everybody has a part in it. It's our team on the ground. It's our driver operations team. It's a customer support team. Obviously, the driver partners also have a huge part in it. One of the biggest roles of a CEO, founders of a company that scales really fast is make sure that we also scale the culture, that people who join the company and get to see me only now and then, they still feel committed. They feel excited. They feel that they're doing something that is bigger, where they can actually make a difference and they can grow their careers. It's harder and harder to do when there's more people in the company. The second thing that we're learning is that creating innovation, running experiments, thinking differently about things is becoming a bigger challenge the more people are in the organizations. Organizations tend to become more and more bureaucratic with more people because the natural tendency is to create structure. You need to be very clear who makes the decisions. You want to put guardrails in place about how to spend money. How do we make sure we're not making mistakes that we're living up to our promise to the customer? How do we maintain that agility where people can move fast and we have you know, try and fail fast mentality. One of the biggest takeaways, at least from this experience so far, is that managing that is not managing decisions, it's managing principles. How do we create a set of principles where people know when to make the decision themselves or just run with it, when to ask for guidance from a manager? You know, what experiments we're willing to take and be forgiven about if we fail? That's not something that I was thinking about on day one or when we had 15 employees two years ago, but it's absolutely something that we're thinking about right now Because to get to the next level, to truly build a logistics powerhouse that powers the e-commerce economy of the future, making sure we create incredible value for customers and for brands out there, we have to start decentralizing the decision-making, the experimentation, which is something that is not very straightforward on day one.
1: And how challenging is it to maintain competitive differentiation in this space, not just having to deal with... The presence of incumbents, but more and more startups trying to get
0: their share of what they see as a really fast growing area. I oftentimes hear from investors and others that there's a lot of activity in the space, a lot of newcomers. The truth is, it's actually not the case. There are a lot of companies that utilize gig economy drivers for 15 minute delivery. That's actually a quite different space than where we are playing. But when you look at the number of companies that are doing what Bio is doing, there's almost nobody. We're talking about facilitating the movement of goods between cities, operating warehouses with our own employees on the ground, facilitating returns, doorstep to pickups from the customer door, and facilitating the return all the way to the distribution center of the brand, which is not even within the city, but somewhere else. There's less competition from newcomers in this space. How do we deal with competition in a way that allows us to maintain our differentiation? Clearly, maintaining the 99.9, 4.9 that I mentioned is key and investing in technology. We understand that we need to take it a level beyond that. Now, we're not just talking about how VO is different today. We're talking more conceptually about how brands should think about the future of their logistics and how logistics should be integrated with their operations to win in the future. Just like when there are presidential debates... And each candidate says, that's not the question. The real question is, you know, we do the same thing. We say, yes, speed of delivery and cost, they matter. That may be the name of the game today. But really, you should be thinking about what does your customer want five years from now? And how do you position yourself to win in our future? We're not trying to be a better shipping facilitator. We're trying to be a partner to the brand and think about the e-commerce logistics to help them be the extension of their brand all the way to the customer door and back. You know, power the circular economy, the economy where you can buy things and you can return things very easily, and those things get sold to somebody else for a lower price for sustainability goals. That is where we're positioning ourselves. Nobody's talking about those things. Everybody's talking about faster, cheaper delivery. The more we tell that story, not only we maintain the differentiation, but we become more and more differentiated as a partner to those brands. Can you just briefly explain one or two ways that Viejo is increasing that customer lifetime value? VO helps brands increase customer lifetime value in multiple ways. At a very basic level, table stakes is actually deliver on the promise that you made to the customer. You buy online and the website says next day delivery. Customer expects to receive it next day. The reality is that in many cases with other carriers out there for various reasons, it doesn't happen next day. And that's where the frustration happens. And those customers ultimately churn or they ask for a refund, go and complain online. And that creates a negative rep for that brand. Living up to that promise is stable stick. And the way we do that is unlike any other company in our space, we don't have fixed capacity. We have completely flexible capacity. This is the innovation around crowdsourcing. VO is a marketplace. It's a platform that seamlessly matches the demand for deliveries, which can change every day. We get days with a lot more drivers than other days. But what we're able to do is make sure that every package gets on a driver, car, and gets to the customer door. Getting everything delivered on time makes the customer much happier. They can rely on the brand they come back and buy more. So that's where we start. But we also take it to the next level. When a customer receives a box from VO, we tell them you're in control. They get notifications from VO along the way. The customer can control where and when and how they want to receive the box. They can talk to a live customer support rep. They can leave feedback. For us, feel for the brand, for the product, something you know was missing in the box, which we channel back to the brand in real time. The customer feels in control that they feel that this is an elevated experience versus somewhere else. I'll give you one more example. One of the things we started doing is expanding into the return space, reverse logistics. We have conviction that that's the future of e-commerce logistics. People will buy online. want to be able to experiment with the product and be able to return it if they don't like it. Otherwise, if I can't return it, I can just go to the store. And if I don't like it, I just don't buy it. E-commerce has to have a competitive edge and it has to solve that problem. Some brands think about returns as a necessary evil. We think about it differently. We think that if we make returns seamless, if it's so easy to return things, at the first place, the customer doesn't even think about it when they place an order. So the conversion at the checkout page goes up. And a customer can trust the brand. And that also increases the propensity to buy. So VO facilitates seamless returns from the customer door all the way back to the brand's warehouse. Uh, In the future, we'll offer doorstep swaps. So you can return something. And at the same time, you're also picking up the different size or the different color or whatever that is. All those are ways to make the customer feel that they're in control. Remove the friction from the shopping experience and increase customer lifetime value. Make sure that the customer chooses the brand because the brand makes it so easy and so seamless and so fun for them to buy and turn logistics from being a headache or an anxiety area to delight. Your first acquisition as a company was quick return earlier this year? Yes, we felt that we needed to move fast on this opportunity. We felt that the world is going in that area where returns are a big part of e-commerce logistics. First and foremost, because it's a huge pain point today. There's a lot of e-commerce brands who want to solve that problem. They want to make it easier for customers to return things because that increases customer lifetime value. They also want to increase the speed in which the items arrive from the customer door back to their fulfillment center because... As long as you don't have the item back at your fulfillment center, you can't turn it over. You can't sell it. So you're stuck. It has financial implications. Quick return fits perfectly with what we're doing already. As a company that we were so impressed with, they were experimenting and they were providing incredible customer experience by doing that. We just love the innovation. We love the entrepreneurship. We want to bring that team in-house to help us build and scale all over the country. The second reason that we made that acquisition, not only it's a better customer experience, but it also fits our worldview of what logistics should be. In the future. In that, we think about sustainability. You know, people buy a lot online. There is criticism sometimes about the amount of waste that goes into all those car boxes and number of vehicles on the road. That's not going to go away in a sense that people will continue to buy more online. It's just much more convenient. But is there a way to make it more sustainable? We believe that by enabling returns, one thing you can do is enable recycling of those boxes. Another thing you can do is enabling the resale of goods instead of making them a waste. So that's what we mean by creating full cycle logistics, a full experience for a brand to sell, return, and then resell the product. I want to ask you briefly about your fundraising journey.
1: You had super successful back-to-back rounds late last year and early this year, bringing your total raise to around $300 million and a an valuation of $1.5 billion. What are you seeing and hearing regarding the environment now for future fundraising given recent macro
0: events clearly the macro environment has changed but the best companies continue to raise we continue to hear and see large rounds the biggest difference between uh, the environment in which we raised is that there is a lot more focus now on sustainable economics unit economics in general and proving that the business can succeed thrive over time and not just be dependent on fundraising money and investor money but one has to take a long-term view. Our economic crises. there was one in 2000, the dot-com bubble, and then the real estate crisis it evolved into a recession. Those happen. Uh, but after each one of those crises, some of the most incredible companies came out of that and created the new type of economy, if you will. We think about this as an opportunity for us to make the foundational uh, either changes or investments that we need to make in order to create a long-lasting company that really would create an incredible impact in the world, those companies who are not making these changes will find it very difficult to raise money in the short run. One thing I noticed about
1: investors in the company is that there are some founders or executives from other big e-commerce players. I saw brands like Harry's and Allbirds, Warby Parker mentioned on one of your fundraising announcements as as investors. Is that endorsement in terms of folks? Being willing to invest in partner e-commerce
0: space? I think so. First and foremost, investors want to make a return on their investment, and they want to invest in something that they're excited about. And second, if they can, they'll want to invest in something they understand something about, and they have a competitive advantage in evaluating that thing. We were privileged to work with some of the leaders of the most exciting direct-to-consumer brands or e-commerce companies in the country. The investors that we work with all have a common understanding that the way e-commerce logistics works today is not going to be the way of the future. In their management meetings, logistics, delivery, returns takes a bigger and bigger part because it's a problem that very few companies are solving. Amazon is solving that for their own needs. Who's going to solve it for everybody else? And ultimately, it's a partnership. We don't see ourselves as a vendor or just as a platform. We see ourselves as a partner to help brands elevate their brand experience and create more meaningful, deeper relationships with their customers. There's no way we can do that if we don't have the voice of, The brand, ideally, the people who are actually thinking strategically about those brands.
1: On the macro condition that we were talking about, to what extent are you seeing impacts in demand from customers in e-commerce? And do supply chain issues come into play at all?
0: The past two years have been monumental in the shift from the older ecosystem of delivering logistics to the new ecosystem. Supply chain issues, the limited or lack of capacity, the disruptions along the way, the lack of visibility, people would not get their stuff delivered on time. The negative emotions that all that would create for brands and for their customers, that drove the shift from the old delivery systems to what VO is creating. But we definitely saw that for the past two years. It allowed us to gain a lot more momentum and prove our case. On the macroeconomy, we're not seeing a significant slowdown with the e-commerce brands that we work with. Uh, I think two things are working here. One is the economy is slowing down. But at the same time, e-commerce is growing very fast. A lot of consumers, as a necessity during the pandemic, change their behavior. And once you change their behavior, there's very little going back. A lot of more folks are buying more and more online. That's not going to go away. Even if there is a recession, so people may be spending less money overall, but they're not spending less money on e-commerce. They may be shifting from buying at the store to buying into e-commerce. The demand is incredibly high in the market. Right now, when we start the conversation with an e-commerce client, somebody very senior, the first question we ask them is, what are your objective goals for this year and for the next three to five years? One of the things that we hear commonly is the need to diversify the carrier base from working with one or two carriers, which was quite common up until a few years ago. We talked earlier about challenges to scaling. Are there particular
1: things that investors or advisors have told
0: you to watch out for or be mindful of at this stage in your scale up journey? Yes, when we raised the two back-to-back rounds and close to $300 million, one of the first things that we heard from investors is, just because we have a lot of money doesn't mean that we need to go and spend it all. That's very clear. There have been companies in the past, and even in more recent days, that raised a lot of money, moved a little too fast, didn't keep their eye on the money, and they ran out of money. We're running our company in a very different way. We're quite conservative when it comes to managing our economics because we want to build a powerhouse for the next 20 years and got to do it in a way that is responsible. We also represent enterprise brands and they trust us to make the right decisions long term for the business. The second watch out was to not get complacent. Raising $300 million is not the end game. It's the beginning of the game. Up until now, we were just working to prove that there is a case for the future of e-commerce logistics, something very different than what you have today. That we can actually help increase customer lifetime value through logistics. Now we're getting money to actually build the future of e-commerce logistics. So we're not even scratching the surface. Now the work is actually starting. One last thing, and I touched on this earlier, is that as organizations grow bigger, they tend to get more bureaucratic, slow down a little bit. They tend to stop innovating and just operating. And that's where you start losing your competitive edge. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. When you raise money, investors want to see more of our ability to scale beyond what we're doing right now. And that's a conversation we have every day at Veal. How do we go to the next stage and bring in more innovation, empower people to make their own decision, move faster, experiment, and do it in a way that does not compromise our competitive edge? You mentioned earlier how much you're
1: expanding in terms of growing the employee base. And I believe hiring dozens, if not more than 100 new software engineers was one of the goals from earlier in the year. Only in the last month have we started to hear about some of the bigger tech players starting To scale back a little and do some layoffs, which is the first we've heard in the tech world in a long time. And I was wondering if if you're seeing any impact on that yet in terms of how challenging the hiring of developers and software engineers is.
0: Yes, we're seeing a slowdown in the job market. 2021 was a crazy year. A lot of companies raised a lot of money. Up until that point, we had not raised a lot of money. We did not invest in building a very strong brand because we were focused on execution, just building the thing. I was the only salesperson at Veal, and we didn't have a marketing department so how do you go and position yourself as an attractive place to work when you're competing with companies that raised hundreds of millions of dollars and they have a PR department and marketing and all that kind of thing? It was an incredibly difficult year from that standpoint. What we did is we invested heavily in our talent acquisition uh, department. We taught our team how to tell the story. It's about humanizing logistics and telling the story and the diversity that we have in the team. This is how we hired people who really saw the value in the mission and wanted to be part of it. Now the world is different. There are a lot of companies who are unfortunately laying off people. You always want to have a high bar for getting the best people to the company. We definitely see that there's more people available in the market today. And they're looking for companies that in 2021 made the right decisions about how they raise money and how they spend the money.
1: Obviously, technology is a huge part of how you thrive and differentiate yourself. As we move forward over the next few years, the more established incumbents, the big nationwide shippers that we talked about earlier, who've been around for so long. Do you expect them to be able to catch up at all on technology and what you've proven in terms of lifetime value and satisfying customer experience? Or do you think it's something that's harder to do for such massive organizations? I have
0: tremendous respect to shipping companies. What they've done is unbelievable. And I never underestimate what they can do. They're there for a reason. They know how to invest, they know how to operate. However, when companies get very big and when the culture of the company was designed around the needs of customers and brands in the 20th century, it is very hard to make those changes because it is not just a technology change. It's about the DNA change. When we started VO, we said, a lot of companies in this space think about efficiencies. And we said, let's start from something very different. How do we create an incredible customer experience? You bring people who are passionate about customer experience. You set metrics around customer experience. You're willing to sacrifice efficiencies in the short term to provide something that is great. And over time, build technology around that. What will will
1: success be defined by by the end of the decade? And where do you see
0: yourself in the organization by then? If you ask me, what is the VO brand all about? Or what do we want it to be as we continue to build our brand? In one word, I would say it's about empowering. Um, It's about empowering brands to grow their businesses, to create loyalty with their customers, to differentiate. It's about empowering everyday people to make a living, working on their own terms, in their own time, in their own personal vehicle, and being part of something that they're excited about. It's empowering customers to remove the anxiety from buying online and give them the freedom and the control they need in order to make sure that they enjoy the opportunities that e-commerce provides. We want to be able to facilitate deliveries everywhere in the country, everywhere in the world, deliveries and returns. We want to power the circular economy. We talked about it before, to build a a more sustainable ecosystem that is powered by next generation logistics. That's where we want to be physically. But mentally speaking, we want to be the chosen partner for every e-commerce brand to go and extend their brand all the way to the customer doorstep and back. And by doing that, create an incredible experience that makes those customers come back and buy again. And I think if we do that, we help those brands differentiate and ultimately we democratize e-commerce. Because There's this tendency for companies to get very large. We like companies getting very large, but we also want to see diversity Uh, and we want to make sure that logistics is not a barrier to entry for e-commerce brands. That Everybody has access to incredible logistics, not just one or two companies because we believe that provides more choices to customers, more choices to everyday people for work. And competition is a great thing. So that's how we think about it. That's where we want to be in the next five, 10 years.
1: That's a great vision for the future.
0: Ita, it's a fascinating story and it'll
1: be fascinating to continue to watch how it evolves. Thank you again for taking the time to speak at such length. Daniel, just want to say thank you for having me here. Really enjoyed this conversation. That's it for this episode of McKinsey on Startups. Thanks as always to our stellar podcast production team, Molly Carlin, Sid Romtree, Myron Shergan, and Polly Noah. And of course, thank you for listening.
0: This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.